From the home of creative writing on the internet, live and uncensored, this is Latopia After Dark. Featuring a fusion of low-down gossip and lofty debate. All hosted by Latopia's Peter Cox. Hello, this is Peter, and I'm delighted to bring you the first of two special shows. As you may know, I'm currently deep in the heart of darkest Minnesota, embedded with the mosquitoes, which apparently is the state bird. But through the magic of podcasting, I can be with you now as we start our stroll through the archives of the first nine months of Latopia After Dark. The idea was very ambitious, uh, not to say foolhardy. Every week we wanted to get together an interesting cross-section of writers from all over the world, uh, together with some special guests from the world of publishing, and generally just chew over the fat a bit. Technically, we were skating on very thin ice right from the beginning, and indeed there were one or two disasters that, uh, thankfully, we managed to bury. But mainly, the gods and goddesses of the internet were with us, and so, every Friday at 8 o'clock in the evening London time and 3 o'clock in the afternoon New York, I was able to say, good evening, good afternoon, good morning, wherever you are, welcome to Latopia After Dark. And as always, we're broadcasting live on Ustream. Join us there if you can, and don't hold back in the chat room. Well, I didn't really need to tell them not to hold back. There were many occasions when the chat room seemed like a non-stop party wilder and certainly more outrageous than anything that happened on the podcast. Looking back at episode one, which you can still listen to on iTunes, it all seemed to go off rather well. It was the 24th of November last year, and the Kindle had just been launched. So, of course, we talked about it quite a lot. Our panellists were Richard Howes, Beverly Gray, Donna Borman, and Dave Bartram. And I asked them about the Kindle, not really from the buyer's point of view or the publisher's point of view or the seller's point of view, but from the author's point of view. What's it going to be like in our brave new electronic future for the author writing for the ebook? And this is what they said. I think the issue is uh, disposability. I mean, that's the difference between maybe a book and a ringtone, which people buy, they use for a while, then they buy another one and they use that for a while. Books traditionally are more durable so maybe it's perhaps not having now going to contradict myself completely not quite the same yeah. thing i think i think also the um and donna brought up a good point i question a dedicated ebook reader i think it's more apt to be a marriage uh, something that comes down to the cell phone. I mean, look at the iPhone. It's already got a screen. It's got a keyboard. Uh, I think more likely it's something that's going to maybe build off the cell phone technology. Mm. As to whether one would want to write for it, I think for a lot of uh, bread and butter writers, those who, who aren't able to write the big blockbusters, mm. it it might go the way of the uh, old dime novels the you know you're not maybe you're not on a tier to to be published by one of the big houses or even one of the middle houses but you still might be a good writer you might have a following i think for those writers this could be great 
Well, um, uh, associated news, relevant news, Houghton Mifflin has just signed a deal with Mobifusion to deliver electronic versions of its books to cell phones, which is exactly what you just predicted, Beverly. But I don't know, has anyone ever read a book on a cell phone? I don't like the idea of it, personally. I mean, you know, my eyes get a bit squiffy watching the uh, the screen on a 1024 by 768 let alone, you know, looking at it on a on yeah. a little screen of a phone. It yeah. sounds awful. Yeah. I mean, I, I like the idea of the Kindle itself, you know, looking at the uh, the advertising on Amazon. It looks such a, a nice-sized text. You know, you, you've got at least, what, eight, nine words on a line. On a mobile phone, it's what? Three, four, maybe it's all in text. Well, you're going to have books that are like 500 words long. Cell phone books are huge in Japan. Do you remember that scene in Star Trek? I think it was Star Trek Four, where Bones McCoy gives Captain Kirk a book for his his birthday, and it's such a, my Lord, it's an antique. And that's what I think of when I hear about the Kindle and things like it. Oh, I was saying cell phone books are huge in Japan. It opens up a market for writers who can write a serialized novel. For instance, uh, this is how Sherlock Holmes started, serialized novels. So why not have cell phone books? Uh, the Japanese are, are downloading them in huge numbers. And apparently Ooh. horror stories do particularly well in this kind of medium because you increase your tension because they're serialized. Right. That, yeah, that's very interesting. That's I hadn't heard about that, Donna. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah. You could also yeah. use the the light from your your cell phone to put under your chin to make yourself really scary, <laughs> as well. Well, the other thing interesting about what what they're saying about cell phone books in Japan is that the writers say they can tell when readers are getting bored because their access tallies dip, and so they can change the plot line. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, make it up as you That's go along. Scary. But isn't this? I don't know. I mean, this is this is great. I mean, I I think cell phone books fantastic. If it you know generates a bit more cash for the authors and yeah, for the hardworking agents as well. Well, yeah, great. Let's <laughs> let's do it. But it's not going to replace the book, is it? it uh, uh, you know, isn't this all just hype? Saying this this is the way that the reading is going to be. I mean, the book has evolved. It didn't just happen yesterday. It's evolved to be the perfect thing. It's fantastic, incredibly cheap data storage, very, very robust. It'll stick around for hundreds of years. I'd like to see the DVD that will stick around for 20 or 30 years. Um, and it's, it's cheap, it's disposable. It's not particularly environmentally friendly. This is what... Um well, what a difference nine months make. I've just bought in the past uh, few days a cell phone, Nokia N95, that's got Moby Reader on it. You can download as many ebooks as you want to and read them to your heart's content. And you know what? It's horrible. I don't want to buy an ebook and read it on my mobile phone. It's a ghastly experience. It makes you lose the will to live. It's not going to work, guys. Just calm down. Whether it's going to work on the Kindle, of course, we don't know, but books on cell phones? Oh, no, I don't think so. Another subject that we perennially return to, and will indeed be returning to until there's nothing else to say about the subject, probably, is J.K. Rowling's lawsuit against those naughty people, naughty publishers, naughty writer, who put together, without her permission, an encyclopedia based upon characters in her book. And in episode two, we broach the subject for the first time. Our regular panellists were joined by popular science writer Brian Clegg, and opinion was sharply divided. You know, on the one hand, yeah, she's made all this money and everything, but on the other, she still has characters in a world to, to imagine there. And I, I can see her wanting to protect that. I mean, that's the whole point of copyright in the beginning. From my viewpoint, I, I think 
absolutely, people ought to be allowed to do this. I mean, if I was writing something and somebody wanted to write a book about my characters, I would be delighted, to be honest, because it means that people are interested in them. If you're going to say you can't do this, you might as well also say you can't write biographies, because surely people own their own lives even more than they own a character. And the fact is, you know, biography is an accepted way of doing it. You can't write history, surely, because, you know, countries ought to be able to protect themselves from people writing about them. It becomes ludicrous. And I think you can't stop people writing about your characters, telling people about what you've done. What you can stop, arguably, is people... Uh, say, writing a new Harry Potter book, that's a totally different thing. But I, I really can't see that it, it's legitimate to say people can't write about what you've done, whether it's an encyclopedia or analysis. It's not, it's not passing off, is it? I mean, that's, that's one of the tests, is if people would be really confused. And um, no one's really, no one surely is going to think that, that J.K. herself has written the Harry Potter lexicon. And, I mean, the point you're making, Brian, really, is that any, any publications like this would only serve to broaden the market. Mm, absolutely. The only equivalent that I can think of is the... Um this took take place over a much longer period of time, is, was the growth of Tolkien encyclopedias and analyses and interpretations mm. and so on. There are a huge number out there, but that, their publication, I, I devoured them avidly as, as a younger kind of Tolkien fan, um, but none of those put off the Tolkien diehards from buying all of the Christopher Tolkien official you know, story histories and the complete history and all of those things that were then endorsed by the Tolkien estate you know, the, the sales of those were not dented at all, quite the opposite. They were probably enhanced by these snippets and suggestions, particularly as most of, you know, the earlier encyclopedias on Tolkien were written prior to the pu publication of the Silmarillion. So there was a huge amount of guesswork from, you know, the original texts that was then filled in later. And so I agree with Brian. I think it's people have a right to celebrate stuff they enjoy and it's not passing off. They're not trying to pretend it's their work. What she's saying is she doesn't want people um, doing this for their author's personal gain. But that's really why authors, um, well, one of the reasons authors write books, though, isn't it? Or am I being cynical? No, I, I, I think the love. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's fair to have a reference work. Fair use is a is a term that is used for a reference book that is a, a commentary. Now, it's more than a smattering, certainly, of her work. But they're not trying to pretend to be her, or it's not fan fiction, in that they're not creating new plots with the characters or new ideas using the characters. They're just analyzing the work. My concern on this, though is where does the line blur between protecting work that you're still working on? I mean, obviously, she has new material she wants to bring into this encyclopedia and everything. So where, where is the line? And, and if there is no line, why do we bother with copyrights to protect creative rights to begin with? Good point. Well, that's, that's where they, they came unstuck in the uh, Da Vinci Code uh, fiasco, isn't it? That, that they said that... Oh, that's another valid good idea. point. I mean... The Holy Blood, Holy Grail, Da Vinci Code issue. Sure, yeah. that, that's a good point, Brian. But a book analyzing why Harry Potter works and the ins and outs of the Harry Potter phenomenon doesn't necessarily affect the market for the Harry Potter fiction books. And also, if you um, give due credit to your sources, you generally escape most of uh, the worst wrath. If you explain that this is the original material represented for people's, uh, you know, careful perusal and you're not claiming it's your own 
you're not necessarily infringing copyright, are well, you? We will see. We'll see. Thank you very much. Oh, yes, indeed we will be covering it. We'll be covering it uh, on Latopia Daily, which is with you five days a week, except for holiday times, of course, and Latopia After Dark, which is with you every Friday evening. News, analysis, comment, opinion, controversy, uh, and lots of fun, too. Um, such an important case. Yes, we will be covering it, indeed, in depth. And episode three we turn to a different subject. Why is it that these days publishing has gone all corporate, all safe, and the sorts of books you typically see in most average bookstores are just dull, not interesting, unexciting, not pushing the boundaries? Come on, what on earth has happened to publishing? Has it gone safe? Well, with this episode, we were delighted to have joined us as our special guest, Lynn Price, who is a herself an independent publisher from California. And Lynn was very forthright on this issue. Well, I and I also think it I also think it depends on what you mean by dangerous. You know, I think that what has happened is so much of it is more titillating and uh, there's just well, face it, there's just a lot of crap out there. It's the same thing with the movies. They're they're giving us they're giving the public what they think we want to see. And I think that that's why I love being a small press because we have the opportunity to put out books that we have heard people want to see and aren't seeing it anymore. The, the flip side of that is uh, that my wife, uh, she's doing a, an English and classics degree at the moment. Um, so most of her reading is quite heavy stuff. Um, when she goes on holiday, when she has some downtime, what she wants to read is the same old Marianne Keys and Penny Vincenzi um, because she knows what she's going to get. Um, I find yeah. that quite quite a banal concept myself, but that there is that that big market um, for same old same old, where you know what the story's going to be like, but it's it's just a, a different formula on the same template. Well, they're smart, you know. Random House, Simon and Schuster, all the big guys—they're very smart. They've got a formula that has served them very very well. It can turn can you, continues to serve them very well, just because they have the most money and they're able to you know set the rules. But there are a lot of, of small commercial independent presses that are out there that are really making an impact on different types of books. But then also we appreciate how tough it is. And so we have to be careful. We can't go too far outside, um, you know, unless unless it, it's a complete niche market where it's, you know, uh, the the vampire. Oh, God, what's what's the new one that's coming out? You know, the vampire uh, murderers or well, any combination of those words would work actually exactly exactly and that is such a niche marketplace and of course those are selling really well um, you know same with romance those sell really well the erotica sells really well and um, so it's just being able to find a place in in the publishing world to stay afloat and that's the toughest thing for the small independent press I was just going to say, uh, and, and then uh, the other aspect is that the people winning awards uh, in the most recent years aren't the the standard books. They're 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 the more the more I guess what we're calling dangerous. The ones prepared to go out and do something different and talk about something new and and strange and and brilliant. Um, for example, you yourself, Lynn, won a an award this year with your book. Right. Well, no offense to our host on, on the issue of unoriginality, but I think agents have to share the blame somewhat. Most big publishers won't even look at unagented books. So if yeah. agents are going to be the gatekeepers, aren't they the ones sending in all the unoriginal stuff? 
most agents want published authors or celebs looking to break into print. So how many have websites out there like Latopia that are dedicated to developing new authors? Well, one that I know yeah. of. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. I think I think agents are very torn on this. Yes, oh, yeah. there he goes, fast talking, trying to get himself out of trouble. Typical agent. Oh, yes. Um, another celebrity who decided to resort to my learned friends to demand justice for themselves or whatever it was, was Chuck Norris, who took exception to a book, um, satirical probably, all about him and the things, the amazing things that he could do. We took a pretty dim view of this kind of behaviour, and this is what Latopia's own lethal weapon, Dave Bartram, had to say about it. I've, I've found a Chuck Norris facts website here, and there, there are two things that strike me. One, There is one here that's actually quite funny, which is... Um, Chuck Norris destroyed the periodic table because he only recognises the element of surprise. <laughs> That's intelligent. <laughs> I, thought that was, I thought that was quite intellectual. But <laughs> beyond that, the interesting thing is there's a list of ones he's he has picked himself. So there's a, there's a bit of hypocrisy in here in that if he's prepared to select ones that he likes and then he is actually upset about the ones he doesn't like, yeah. you know, the ones he doesn't like are the one about not sleeping or... This one relates to us, obviously. Chuck Norris doesn't read books. He stares them down until he gets the information he wants. <laughs> I think it's the way you tell them, Dave, really, that it brings them to life. I do my best. I do my best. Uh, and Chuck Norris can lead a horse to water and make it drink. You know, that's great, too. And so he's, he's selecting the ones that he likes. So presumably if the book was full of the ones he liked yeah. and he was getting the money, yeah. he wouldn't have a problem. Yeah, but there is there is an, a kind of issue, isn't there? Really, there's a sort of semi-issue. I mean, I don't know about racist lewd and so on, but um, the issue is sort of controlling your name, isn't it? Especially if your name is a brand name. I I don't know if you guys have seen the other Chuck Norris news. Uh, we in the states have been and confronted with Norris standing behind this guy Huckabee who's running for president too, oh, and it's night after night, and he's campaigning with this guy. So. Uh, I think it's odd that the two 